So I find in my research that those from uh, working class and uh, more, more well-off families are just about equally likely to be interested in following their passion and, and to prioritize passion seeking in their career decision making. But the outcomes of what happens when people do vary quite drastically by socioeconomic background. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Dr. Aaron Seck, an associate professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of Michigan. Her research examines cultural mechanisms of inequality reproduction, especially through seemingly innocuous cultural beliefs and practices. Her research has appeared in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, Science Advances, and the American Sociological Review. She joins me today to talk about her book, The Trouble with Passion, How Searching for Fulfillment at Work Fosters Inequality. Erin, welcome to Science for the People. Thank you for having me. So follow your passion, as you note in the book, and as I'm sure we have all heard and understand, is very common advice, not just for careers, but I think in especially in terms of career careers. So I'm interested how you got interested in this both as a research topic, but also why write a book on it as well? <laughs> That's a great question. So this is one of those cases where the data really had to scream loudly at me before I recognized the pattern. So um, my research uh, uh, starting off this project was really focused on the way that young career aspirants, particularly those who are going to college, think about their career decisions. So what they were thinking about with their major, what, what, what factors they were weighing when trying to make that decision, and then what they were thinking about after graduation, what kind of pathways they wanted to pursue, and what were the priorities they had in weighing different options and different career trajectories. I was especially interested in gender differences in these processes, um, trying to understand, for example, why we see such a strong uh, presence and continuation of occupational gender segregation uh, in a society that has generally moved to welcoming, uh, at least uh, in theory, um, people of all genders and all different kinds of occupations. And so I was doing interviews with college students asking them, why did you why are you in the major that you are what do you want to do after graduation looking for gendered patterns and i actually just didn't see the gendered patterns i sort of was expecting instead this uh much more common narrative of seeking your of seeking their passion of of trying to find meaning and fulfillment in their work uh came up and sort of the side story with the gender pieces um that that uh, the 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 people who identified as men and women in this study tended to be passionate about different things, and so that then led to the reproduction of occupational gender segregation. But generally, there was this narrative about wanting to find a pathway that would allow a sense of meaning and fulfillment and sense of identity. And the reason that this became something that seemed so important to study was twofold. One was that this ran counter to most of the narratives in social sciences, especially in sociology and economics, about how people make career decisions, especially those who are highly educated. So folks who who have a college degree or are seeking it. The narrative there tends to be, well, people find the pathway that will lead to uh, the greatest economic stability and security and or have the highest wages that that person might be able to, to garner down the line. And so this idea that people might be following their passion, even if it means sacrificing economic stability and security and job security down the line, um, really ran counter to those kinds of narratives. So that felt like something really important theoretically and empirically to try and understand better. And then the second piece that it felt so important is because I and most of my colleagues 
seem to be evangelizers of the idea of passion seeking, that I would tell my students to follow their passion and think about job security later, um, or find find the thing that they were that, that they were invested in it and interested in, even if that meant that they would leave the field of sociology and find something different. That this idea that the students that I interacted with should prioritize their meaning and fulfillment in the majors that they chose and what they did after graduation was um, an instinct that I utilized over and over again. And I saw my colleagues utilizing over and over again. And it concerned me as a scholar of inequality to ask whether the kinds of patterns that come out of the prioritization of passion might actually be things that reproduce uh, socioeconomic and other uh, forms of demographic inequality. Passion seems to be at first blush. It definitely seems to be like great advice. It sounds and kind of hits us as, yeah, why wouldn't you want to follow your passion? Passions are something that everybody has and everybody knows about and everybody's had that feeling of being passionate about something. What's the negative there? So, I mean, the book instantly kind of grabbed me because I went, oh, I hadn't really thought about it in that way. This should be interesting. And it was. Um, so, I want to unpick some of this. And I think probably the best place to start is a little bit of background, because there's a few terms that I think will be helpful to understand your research. Um, and even before we get to that, what I also want to understand is how did you conduct the research that you talk through in this book? What kinds of methods do you use to try to start to understand what's happening here? Yeah, that's a great question. So as I noted, I began the research in the space of in-depth interviews. And so these are so effective because they allow us to understand the trajectories uh, of people in, in their pathway through institutional processes like higher education and then into the workforce. And so I did 100 interviews of students at three different US uh, institutions, Stanford University, University of Houston, and Montana State University. And I chose these institutions because they provide a range of um, the sociodemographics of the students, the geographic location, the presumed selectivity of the students involved, and the kinds of opportunities those students have available to them after they graduated. So I wanted to make sure that um, if, for example, the passion principle was salient in one school, it wasn't just the particularities of that school that led to that being prioritized, but it was something that was more common among uh, students in four your institutions across the United States. And so um, in addition to understanding the passion principle there, I thought that I wanted to make sure that this was something that was actually resonant after students left college. And so I conducted follow-up interviews with a, a set of these students um, two to five years after they had graduated college to see what happened to them in the labor force for those who were seeking their passion, if they continued to do so, what kinds of things they were willing to uh, sacrifice or prioritize after encountering what it was like in the labor force after having uh, earned their college degree. And in addition to that, I wanted to understand the salience of the idea of the passion principle in the college educated workforce more generally. And because this is a concept that I'm theorizing uh, anew in this book, there wasn't surveys existing already that that uh, operationalized these ideas. And so I created my own survey. I uh, launched it to a proportionally representative sample of college educated workers in the United States uh, to be able to understand the prevalence of the passion principle uh, among those college educated workers. Um, and in addition to that, I did some analyses of uh, existing uh, national level surveys that include non-college educated workers to try and calibrate, is this, is this a worker thing? or is this a college educated worker thing? And then I also did interviews of career counselors and coaches. So if we think about the population that is professionally um, given the, the, the legitimacy and the jurisdiction to give advice in, in the United States to those who are puzzled about what they want to do, it is the profession of career counselors and coaches. And so 
Um, I conducted interviews with 27 career counselors and coaches in various places uh, in the United States. I also did some supplemental um, surveys and analyses of uh, a, a survey of uh, college students and compare some of the data I have uh, to prior uh, surveys. So and in a sense, what I did is I took this this idea of the passion principle and tried to walk around it with um, as many methodologies as I felt was were important for me to be able to understand the prevalence of this concept, as well as the kinds of implications it could have uh, in various ways for people's lives. I imagine it can be really tricky to interview about these kinds of topics, probably a wide variety of topics studied in sociology in a way that doesn't lead the interviewee. I mean, people are really suggestible. I'm, for example, interviewing right now, but it's okay for me to lead you. We have a particular topic. We're creating a podcast about it kind of makes sense. But in interviews you conduct for sociological research, I imagine you have to be really careful to not lead people to certain answers. How do you try and ensure that? Indeed, the wording is very important. So, um, for example, if I'm sitting in front of an interviewee and I'm trying to understand their career trajectory priorities, um, for example, trying to understand um, the factors that they're considering in their major choice, I would ask a question like, how did you end up in your major? And that's a much different way of asking a question than what interested you about your major, right? If I asked, what interested you in your major, that prioritizes interest in their answer and may um, prefigure them to answer in a way that prioritizes passion. So I had to be very careful from the very beginning uh, about structuring these interviews in a way that didn't presume that the people responding to the questions uh, acted in particular ways, contextualized and conceptualized things in particular ways. In addition to that, there's also tools for um, being able to uh, bring things that might not be uh, immediately salient to the interviewee to the foreground to make sure that you have appropriate um, comparison. So, for example, in many of these the interviews I did with students who prioritize passion, they often didn't say anything about the importance of job security or salary in their career decision making. And so I wanted to make sure that the absence in the interview context was not interpreted uh, inappropriately as an absence of importance to them in their, their conceptualization and in their consideration. And so in those the contexts, what I did was, would, would ask them, well, what about money? Uh, monetary concerns in your uh, in your career selection. What role do, do, does that play? What about family considerations? What about job security considerations? And then allow them to proactively answer um, in relation to that particular issue, so that when I went back and be able to analyze it, I could I could see their response not only when I was left it open ended, but also. When they're, when they're responding to particular considerations that I give them. Another way too is to um, bring up hypotheticals. So uh, telling a story about someone's experiences and have, having them respond to their thoughts about that. Um, so there's vignette vignette-based methods can be really effective as well. And I tend to like to ask the same question in um, at least two ways, if not three or four different ways at various points uh, in an interview to make sure that the responses I'm getting aren't um, tied explicitly to the way that I've phrased a particular question, but rather um, are, are, are more um, generally tapping into uh, the respondent's sense. It's interesting to hear about all of the different ways you can try and get a whole piece of data, because we do often assume that if someone doesn't mention it, that means it's not important or that it wasn't considered, but an absence of bringing it up off of the back of one question doesn't mean that. We just have a tendency to assume that. Exactly. And that's also why having survey methodology is really important here as well, because in a survey, it is a closed 
uh, a closed set of answer choices. And so what I can do is ask about um, the importance of them of uh, finding a job that they're passionate about, finding a job with a high, high salary, finding a job with job security, and then look at the importance that they give to each of those. And then I can actually compare, do they give the same level of importance to passion-related considerations compared to uh, these other considerations? So taking all of these data together really helps tell a more powerful story than you'd be able to with uh, only one methodology alone. So now I get to do something I actually really like doing, which is ask someone to define a word everybody knows the definition for. Um, so in the context of your research and in the context of this book, what does passion mean? What, what is the working definition we should use for passion in this discussion? That's a really important point. So as you noted, the, the 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 term passion is used in a lot of different contexts in a lot of different ways. But what I mean here by passion is a sense uh, of, of connection or commitment to a particular uh, field, whether that is something like sociology or computer science or a particular productive task realm. So coding or um, a, a child development or something like that. And there are three interrelated components to a sense of passion for work. So one is a uh, an intellectual connection to the work, a sense of curiosity or intrigue uh, that is evoked by the particular content, the substantive content of the field. Uh, another piece of this is uh, an emotional connection, a sense of kind of positive affective response, like it brings them joy or they're excited about it. And then a third is a um, biographical sense of match or fit with that field. So in some ways it feels um, uh, idiosyncratically, uniquely tied to their sense of identity or sense of background. And so some people, some people's sense of passion for a line of work might have only one of those. It might have all three. Um, these are tend to be sort of overlapping and interconnected in a sense of what it means to have passion for a field. You noted that we tend to think of passion as being highly individualistic. And um, I think you use the word idiosyncratic, which is a, a great one, which basically means, you know, unique to me, it kind of erupted from some unique part of me and is kind of uniquely mine. Um, but you interrogate this assumption in the book quite heavily. Uh, so are they actually? <laughs> <laughs> they feel as though they are, but they are heavily socially constructed as all parts of our identity are. So one of the one of the underlying ideas in many post-industrial societies, the United States in particular, most Anglophone countries as well, is that individuals are in control of their own sense of identity. And so self-expression and individualism are crafted wholly by individuals. But we are only we are only individuals in the context of the social structures in which we are embedded. So our sense of selves are heavily inflected by gender, by race, ethnicity, by class, by LGBTQ status, maybe by our religion, because we come to understand ourselves in the context of gendered and racialized and class and heteronormative social institutions. And so this is why we see patterns in things like what people are interested in, what kind of subjects people like by gender and race and class and, and, and sexual identity, because we come to see ourselves through those institutions. So um, there's this really wonderful a picture that circulated a number of years ago that had um, a, a, a boys room and a girls room and they had everything in the boys room collected that was blue and everything in the girls room that was collected that was pink. And it was stark uh, how uh, divergent not only the colors were, but also the objects that these uh, two children were engaged with on a day to day basis. And we know that from social psychology that the things that we we give kids to play with the kinds of things we encourage kids to invest their time in end up helping them to develop their sense of identity and so if we as individuals have 
divergent senses of identity, and this is in the aggregate, this doesn't mean that every person within a particular uh, uh, social identity will align perfectly with that sense of identity, but in the aggregate, that means that that we have patterns in what people see as part of their identity. And so when people go to express their sense of self in their life choices, in this case, in their choice of a career path, when they seek their passion that's aligned with their sense of self, they tend to reinforce the very patterns of gender and race and class segregation that help to create those gendered and racialized and, and class senses of self in the first place. One of the things I found really interesting reading through the interview cases and the survey information that you highlight in the book is how clearly we tend to believe passion to be an intrinsic and often very singular quality that we have to find our passion. And I'm sort of using scare quotes around find. Passion is a thing to find and discover rather than a thing to cultivate. And there is the passion, not a passion, not one of potentially many, but a sort of singular passion that is uniquely yours, which is in retrospect, something that seems obvious, but is kind of a hard trend to notice until it's kind of in your face a little bit. Yeah. And what's so what's so troubling with that is it really means that those who are trying to make career decisions and, and are motivated to prioritize their passion seeking in those career decisions, but don't know what their passion is, often uh, experience quite a high level of anxiety or at least angst in that decision making. Because they, it's not just that they don't know what they want to do for their career, but it's a sense that they don't know themselves, that somehow they haven't tapped into or paid attention closely enough to who they are to be able to understand what their passion is. And we can see this at play in a lot of different spaces. So um, one of uh, my favorite articulations of this idea comes from uh, a theorist named Anthony Giddens. And there's like, this idea of the self-reflexive project. And this is the sense that, that in postmodern societies, we are expected to have this sense of self, this sense of identity that we, that we craft and create and refine over the course of our lives that there's this this overarching arc of our identity that we we tweak and we refine but it has a sense of wholeness to it a consistency to it and the lack of consistency is something that can be raised as sort of a potentially uh, a moral flaw to an individual and so when we are when we are um, expected to act in ways that align with our sense of self, um, that often feels like the need to identify what we're passionate about and have that be consistent over the course uh, of our lives and especially over the course of our careers. We also see this in how we talk to children about occupations. So the question, what do you want to be when you grow up, is expected to be answered with an occupation. And if you stop and think about it, that seems quite absurd because we're asking the, the child, what do you want to be? They can be many things. They can be um, a wonderful neighbor, a caring friend, a, an engaged parent, somebody who's a community leader that has nothing to do or, or little to do with um, engagement in the paid workforce. But we expect the answer to be in the space of an occupation. And we then expect the answer that the young person gives us to be a reflection of their identity, that we read into a child who they are or, and who they might be in the future by the kind of answer they give us in terms of what they want to be as part of the paid workforce. Even when we're talking with adults, I mean, sometimes even before we ask another adult their name, Quite often, if not the first question, probably top three is what do you do? Yeah. And just like when we ask children, what do you want to be when you grow up? The implication there is not, I want to be a mom. I want to be interested in art. It's just, 
I want to do X. I want to have this career. This is the job I want to do, or this is sorry, the job I do in general. That that's ultimately what everybody is aware we're asking, and that's the way we ask it. And this is a book that made me realize um, that question had always kind of rubbed me the wrong way, and I do try to kind of stay away from it a little bit. Because if someone's not really happy with their job and doesn't want to be identified with their job, or maybe just doesn't want to talk about it, or maybe doesn't have a job at the moment, it kind of disadvantages them in those conversations because they do become kind of weirdly identityless, which is a, just an uncomfortable place to be in, in a conversation. One thing that's so interesting in connection to this is what happens to people who are passionate about their work when they retire. So uh, in the literature on what's called encore careers, this idea that people, um, when they're often in their late 40s, early 50s, or even early 60s, who are full participants in the labor force, decide to completely switch gears and follow something that they're actually passionate about. Um, and this can mean totally retraining. So people in their 60s going back to law school, for example, because they want to be um, a civil rights lawyer or somebody who um, was in corporate finance and really wants to teach, getting uh, a teaching certification in their 50s and going in the classroom. There's a sense that um, that that they want to be invested and involved in work that they're passionate about and are willing to just drop everything in a career for which they have decades of experience and uh, and recognition and follow something that's more in line with their passion. But we see when people leave jobs that they're passionate about, there's a sense of loss sometimes that it's not just a loss that they're not spending time with colleagues that may have become friends or part of their uh, part of their community over time, but they're disconnecting with a sense of their identity. They're not quite sure who they are without their participation in the paid workforce. Um, and so we often will ask people who retire, um, what did you do? as though that identity was their identity as a retired person who might be invested and involved in many, many things that they feel personally committed to can be seen exclusively or almost exclusively through the lens of the work that they did in the past. So let's dig into the passion principle a little bit now that we've done some of the setting up of uh, a lot of the meat and potatoes, as we might say in the book. So how common is the passion principle that you found in people's career decision-making, in particular, obviously in the cohort you were looking at for your research in, in this book? So over... Um over two thirds of the students that I talked to prioritized uh, passion as a top uh, a, a top priority in both the major that they chose and what they were planning to do after graduation. And two thirds of those I interviewed after graduation had acted in a way that had prioritized their passion in their career seeking. In the survey, I find that over two thirds of college educated workers in the United States also rank uh, passion related considerations um, equal to uh, higher than they rank considerations of money and job security, and uh, three quarters of them agree that passion-related considerations of finding meaning and fulfillment at work are important in career decision-making in the abstract. When I ask uh, college-educated workers in the workforce through the survey um, to, to rank priorities and what they would consider in a new job, over half of them gave um, uh, ranked passion as their top priority over things like job security and salary. But I want to note that this is a little bit distinct from those without a college education. So in most post-industrial societies and Anglophone countries in particular, um, having a college education gives one access to jobs that might allow for some semblance of job security and a salary that one can live on in contrast to those without a college education who are much less likely to have access to those things. So when I look at the salience of passion, vis-a-vis uh, -vis things like job security and salary, um, often people without a college education rank things like job security and salary above 
uh, passion considerations in importance. However, I did not find that there was a education level difference in the importance people gave to passion. It was just that those with a higher with uh, a college degree were uh, more likely to rank job security and salary less important than those without a college education. So overall, this is an extremely widespread value in terms of how people think about career decision making in their own lives and in how they think other people should be making career decisions. So when we're talking about weighting passion more heavily than something like job security or potential pay in a career path, how much difference are we talking about that this can make in a choice? Are we talking about, and I'm going to use an exaggerated example because it's kind of one that everyone can think about, I think, am I picking between, am I more passionate in law or am I more passionate in medicine? And both of those things pay pretty well. Both of those things have probably pretty good job security. So maybe in that context, picking passion, while it has certainly a big impact on your career, it may not have a big impact on salary or job security. So where, how much impact did we see that that potentially had with people using it as such a, a big metric or such a big way of choosing? Sure. So um, passion considerations came in iter- iteratively. So um, I was interested in, uh, in the interviews in particular to really parsing out um, the kind of ordering of these decision making. So I wondered if it was the case that people would choose a range of occupations that they that were in line with their um, their interest in things like financial security and salary, and from that smaller subset, decide what they were most or least passionate about. Um, and what I found is that in general, people would think about it in the opposite way. So say, I am interested in um, something in humanities or the classics. And so if it's something that I'm also interested in job security and salary, let me look among that much smaller subset to see what field might lead to um, the most stability out of a set of two or three fields or or the most, the highest salary out of two or three fields. Um, And then it would come back in when people were making decisions about uh, what places to apply for in jobs. So for example, those who were in engineering might um, carve off entire area areas of the economy or production because they weren't aligned with their passion. Maybe somebody was interested, was a, I interviewed a chemical engineering graduate, for example, and she uh, was really invested in uh, green energy. And so for that reason, just didn't apply to any of uh, the oil and gas companies, which there's a lot of opportunities for her line of work in that space and chose to apply, uh, chose to apply for jobs that were in the not-for-profit sector or in um, governmental or small startups, which often had much lower salaries and lower job security uh, considerations. Um, But sometimes the consequences of uh, following their passion uh, over and above job security and salary could have immense consequences. So for example, one of the students that I interviewed, um, she went in, it had a pre-med undergraduate education and was in a pre-med fellowship that was really prestigious and had the uh, reputation of getting people very easily into medical school after it was over. But two weeks into this uh, pre-med fellowship, she had this realization that she wasn't passionate about medicine. She wanted to be a YouTube video content creator instead, that she had stories that she wanted to tell through YouTube videos, and that's the thing that she was passionate about. So she left this very prestigious uh, fellowship position to take an unpaid internship at a video creation company. And she thought that that would turn into something that would be paid, a paid stable job uh, in that uh, video creation company, but that just didn't materialize. And so at the time that I interviewed her, she was working as a contract worker for that video creation company, making about $150 a day when she could get work, which was maybe three or four times a week. Um, But she wasn't uh, taking home the kind of money she expected to um, uh, because of the lack of stability in uh, this this video creation company. And so I asked her 
to reflect on her decision making and and how she felt about how things progressed in terms of of how she ex what she expected or not and she did not express any kind of regret for her decision and in fact she was so happy to be doing work that she was passionate about even if that meant having little uh job security and uh, a very low salary at the time this is what i find probably one of the most interesting things about the research that you present in the book and some of your conversations is people are not making the call to move with passion in a trivial way. In a lot of cases, they are fully aware that potentially some of the choices they're making to align with passion instead of job security or um, financial security trades off the other side. And there is a lot of language like, I don't need a lot to live. I just want to enjoy what I do. There's a lot of language around not feeling dreary about having to spend a lot of time at work um, and, and those kinds of things. And it it's it was one of these things while reading through the was starting to read the book, I'm like, I was thinking, is it something that just people aren't thinking about anymore? Do we not really kind of go into these decisions with our eyes open? And it felt like in a lot of situations, our eyes were mostly open and we were aware that we were choosing passion and perhaps taking on some precarity. And we were quite happy to do that, which I found really interesting. Yeah, I also thought uh, when I first started doing the interviews that this was just a lack of knowledge or a naivete about the way that the labor market works, that these were these are young adults, you know, some of them hadn't had much exposure at all to the labor market, and they just thought it might operate in a different way than it actually does. But if you dig into these interviews and, and, and you listen, you kind of talk to young adults about their understanding of the labor market, they are pretty educated about the kind of stability and insecurity that the labor market entails. And that is something that kind of insecurity and instability has existed for the last four decades. So we talk in sociology about the growing precarity of the labor market, even for white collar workers who were in the past much more protected from that kind of precarity. Precarity meaning that we can't count on um, long-term job security. We can't count on the fact that we have a college degree to be able to parlay that into uh, a livable wage. And so these students were very well aware that there is no white collar job that is safe from uh, mass firings <laughs> anymore or from uh, the kind of precarity we have come to see and kind of come to expect in maybe service work or blue collar work. And for them, that was part of the reason why passion was rational as a decision. The way that students and, and these college educated workers talked about it was that, well, if I'm not guaranteed security or stability for any major, I might as well just follow the major that I choose. They were also very well aware of the kind of overwork and work devotion that's expected of white collar workers. They saw their parents and maybe siblings or friends that were older than them in the white collar labor force. They saw that they did not work 40 hours a week. They often worked 50, 60, 70 hours a week. And they thought to themselves as they articulated to me, if I'm going to be working so hard anyway, I might as well have it be aligned with something that I love. So I think this is something we can kind of all align with. Certainly people who work white collar right now, that includes me and I've definitely felt that vibe. If I'm going to be here for a long day, I might as well enjoy the long day as much as I can. Um, is there any evidence that we have that making those decisions, uh, those those trade-offs to follow passion rather than perhaps something that may be more stable or maybe more fi be be more financially rewarding is that is does that end up being a good choice over the long term are people who chase those passions actually being rewarded with their perception of a better life or a sort of definitively a better life even if we start crunching numbers 
It's difficult to say because there hasn't really been uh, the surveys that would, for example, to be able to to understand that. What we do know is that people who are passionate about their work tend to high, have um, higher levels of job security. That's absolutely no surprise. Um, but what's interesting is what I find is that people who are passionate about their work don't actually earn any more than people who are not passionate about their work, but in the same line of work, even though people who are passionate about their work are more engaged in their job and are more willing to put in more effort into their job than they are than than uh, their job, uh, their job title demands. So it sounds like being passionate may make you feel better about spending all that extra time, but it's not actually getting you any rewards numerically. Exactly. And in the collective, in the aggregate, it's actually really problematic that passion is seen as the salve to a precarious um, work, uh, overworked um, uh, labor force. So um, one of the things that we might presume could have happened with the increasing in precar- increase in precarity over time is that people would double down in finding the most stable, most well-paying jobs that they could, regardless of their interests. But instead, people gravitated toward this idea of of individual solutions of finding their passion and following their passion to manage the kind of precarity and overwork that they're encountering. But because it's an individual level solution, it still reinforces this culture of overwork in the white collar workforce. It doesn't do anything to resolve the expectation that we work 60 or 70 hours a week. And in fact, it probably makes it worse down the line because if if we work in a startup and uh, we express passion for the startup. We are hired into that startup. Everybody in the in the startup is expected to um, be passionate about their work. That sets the bar pretty high in terms of uh, not limiting one's work to forty hours a week, but rather um, engaging in the kind of overwork that's so uh, endemic in the white collar workforce. It does feel like it ultimately, if the people who are passionate aren't getting anything out of it financially or reward-based from the businesses and organizations they work for, it does seem like the organization or the businesses get a lot of wins for no additional cost. And so they don't really have any incentives to try and fix that problem. If people seem to be willing and volunteering to work the extra time and that's benefiting, who are the businesses to say, no, no, please don't, please stop working. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. Um, and it's it's not just that they they uh, they benefit from them passively, but some of my research for the book suggests that they actually seek this out, if not exploit it. So in one of the surveys that I did, I included a survey experiment that presented these white collar workers with some fictitious but quite uh, believable application materials for a job. And so I looked at application materials for two uh, hypothetical jobs. One was a job for a, a youth program manager for a community nonprofit. This is a kind of job where we might expect being passionate about the work might make people at least look to the clients as though they were better at their job uh, than somebody who wasn't passionate about the work. And the second job I looked at was a an Uh, an accountant at an IT firm. And we would be much less likely to think that being passionate about accounting would actually make you better at accounting. It might even make you make more questionable decisions or something like that. And so what I did is I I randomly presented um, the people in the survey with applications that emphasize different things in the cover letters. So in one version, it emphasized passion for the work. And then the other uh, versions, it emphasized things like commitment to the organization or uh, uh, being pleased about the salary or, or liking the location where the organization was based. And what I found is that people who evaluated these applications um, were more interested in hiring the passionate applicant 
than people who saw the version of the application materials from the other versions uh, of the cover letters. Um, and this is true for both the community or the, uh, the youth program manager job and the accounting job in the IT firm. Um, and what I found is that part of the reason why the passionate applicant was preferred over these other applicants was number one, they were believed to be harder workers than people who were um, who expressed other reasons to be motivated to apply for the job. And also because the people evaluating the applications believed that the app, the passionate applicant would be more likely to take on an increasing level of responsibility without an increase in pay. Recognizing that there is uh, an acknowledged sense that someone who is passionate about the work would be able to provide the organization with more effort than they would be rewarded for. Effectively, more return on investment. Exactly, exactly. Which, to be fair, that's what a business is trained to do. <laughs> but what's interesting, though, is that the research in this space doesn't suggest clearly that having people who are invested and ultra passionate about their work actually produces better outcomes. So there's lots of research over the last decade that suggests that people who have more rest, who have the opportunity to recuperate, who take more time off, who take more vacations, actually are more productive per hour when they engage in their work than people who just continually to work, work and churn all the time. So although it it seems as though workers would get more out of passionate workers. That's a really open empirical question to, to whether or not that's actually the case. It's a good point. It also probably speaks to the fact that most businesses and organizations are not actually very good at measuring value beyond <laughs> just dollars, right? Mm -hmm. So I also want to talk about the um, other ways that a passion principle, especially broadly culture-wide, like we are seeing this in the English-speaking world, and in particular in the US, how this can foster inequality. Because it seems very much individualistic. It seems like if someone makes a choice to follow a passion, it's hard to necessarily see how that can be a negative for them if they've gone in, as we've said, with some awareness of the precarity of the workforce and are to some extent, making that decision with open eyes. So can you talk a little bit, um, I'm thinking in particular about the springboards and safety nets section of the book, which I found really fascinating. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the broad cultural emphasis on following your passion and the encouragement, if not pressure, that we would put on young adults to follow their passion and their career decision-making wouldn't necessarily be a mechanism of inequality reproduction if everyone had equal opportunities to turn their passion into gainful, stable employment. And that is certainly not the case. So I find in my research that those from uh, working class and uh, more, more well-off families are just about equally likely to be interested in following their passion and, and to prioritize passion seeking in their career decision making. But the outcomes of what happens when people do vary quite drastically by socioeconomic background. So I find that when people from uh, upper middle class, wealthy families pursue their passion, they're quite likely to end up in well-paying jobs and stable jobs that are well aligned with their passion. And part of the way they're able to do this is to is through access to springboards and safety nets of their, their family of origin. So springboards are things like social capital and cultural capital from their parents. So their parents' networks that give them access to their mom's friend of a friend who is the CEO of a company they can be an intern in, or somebody is a, a, a neighbor uh, of their family who is in, involved in a not-for-profit sector that can give them the inside information about how to access uh, work in the not-for-profit sector. Or maybe just the cultural capital to know how you apply for graduate school or how you go about an interview in uh, the white collar labor force. Those things are much more likely to be accessed by people 
um, who are come from wealthy families than people who uh, come from uh, uh, less wealthy backgrounds, who are first gen students, for first generation students, for example. But there's also these safety nets that are uh, often financial. So these are uh, funds that are not just the paying for of students' uh, 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 tuition and fees and uh, and their living expenses. Why they're that why they while they are in college, but maybe also paying for their rent as they take an unpaid internship that can be especially important uh, in launching a career in some industries or allowing the new college graduate to be able to uh, look around for a job that aligns with their passion without having to grab the first opportunity <laughs> to get a paycheck. Um, for example, there was a student uh, that I interviewed who uh, spent the better part of three years trying to figure out a job that would align with her passion and in the entirety of that time was supported in terms of her living expenses and her rent and things uh, by her parents and uh, many uh, lower uh, maybe many working class students many first gen students do not have those kinds of opportunities and i find in the workforce overall including college educated college educated workers in the workforce overall not just these students that i interviewed uh, college educated workers from wealthy families were much more likely to be in jobs that were both aligned with their passion and were stable and had good secure uh, 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 a decent salary than people from uh, working class families were. And sometimes it sounds like it's just the ability to wait out the precarity longer to be able to, it feels like sometimes there is a precarity gorge between <laughs> university and a stable career that is maybe not in every career path, but in a lot of them and the ability to kind of weather and make your way through that, what feels like in the world right now, a frustratingly inevitable period of time after university, um, that really makes a huge difference in the future that you can have. It does. And it's not just whether these student, these uh, new college graduates can get jobs that are in their passion, but whether it's in their passion and it's something that can sustain them long-term. And as well, of course, um, especially in countries like the United States that, that don't provide uh, the same level of um, financial support for students in terms of paying their tuition, many of these working class first-gen students were carrying around tens of thousands of dollars of student loan debts. Uh, a student loan debt, um, in addition to not having having the same uh, springboards and safety nets as their wealthier peers. This wasn't something that came up in the book, but I wonder if you or any other research you know about has studied how passion on career paths and ability intersect. Um, uh, for example, I, I knew someone who pursued a passion of medicine, but quickly ran into an ability roadblock. But because they were so passionate about it, they kept trying long after it was clear to sort of everyone around them that it probably wasn't going to happen and ended up racking up quite a lot of debt in the pursuit of that passion, kind of a doggedly pursuit, a dogged pursuit of that passion, um, even when they ran into some ability roadblocks. I'm wondering if there's any um, research on that or any information uh, or thoughts that you have on kind of that intersection as well. There wasn't anything, there's not studies that I think are specific on that topic, but that's certainly something that came up uh, in my interviews quite a lot. So I asked about skill, how important skill was and whether um, whether having not whether being skilled at something should be more important, less important, or equally important as being passionate about it. And overwhelmingly, students would say that passion was more important than skill because the presumption was skills could be learned. That if you were passionate enough about something, that you could invest the time and energy needed to be good at it. And there were certainly boundary conditions on this. So mm -hmm. um, they didn't presume, for example, that someone who was really passionate about being an Olympic diver could be an Olympic diver just by being good at it if they didn't have the skill uh, uh, needed. But generally, you know, things that were academic, that if you were interested, if you were passionate enough about it, that passion would drive uh, the necessary investment to develop that skill. So um, that 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 instinct, I think, that you're talking about with with uh, your contact is was actually quite common. 
Yeah, that idea of passion is enough to kind of get me over this, even if it's not actually well aligned with my ability or how my brain works, or the fundamental skills aren't quite aligned with uh, what I'm good at. Right. And that's another piece of the way that this is such a problematic uh, narrative about career selection is because if the idea that people should follow their passion has this sense of kind of the meritocraticness of uh, the labor force or of uh, the education structure embedded within it. If we believe that everybody should follow their passion and we see people who are um, not successful or are encountering a skill roadblock, we immediately blame them for their lack of success, not necessarily the social and institutional structures in which they are embedded that might be limiting their ability to be successful in something that they are passionate about. This is something in the book I call choice washing, uh, meaning that we take things that are inherently uh, processes of structures and cultures and call them the outcomes of choice. I would expect as well that in some of those judgments on people who are struggling to excel in a field they are passionate about, depending on how close you are to that person and how aware you are of the way of potentially how hard they are working to try and move the needle, those kinds of things, that for a lot of those those situations, my assumption, though I obviously don't have any data because I'm not a sociologist. My assumption there is that probably a lot of the moral judgments they get are you're not passionate enough, you're not working hard enough. And those are even harder to swallow and kind of drive maybe a bit of a vicious circle I'd expect for some types of people. Yeah. And it becomes something that people blame themselves when they encounter these kinds of roadblocks. That uh that it it means that not only others aren't seeing the kinds of structural obstacles in place, but but that individuals themselves recognize recognize it as an outcome of their lack of ability or their lack of trying hard enough, rather than things that are um, quite literally outside of their control because they're um, structural and institutional obstacles. Really interesting topic. And I'm also curious to find out what your own reaction was as you started to get a sense of what your research was pointing you at as you were reading it as someone who, um, as you note in the book, works in a career path, academia, which very much is uh, tends to be a career path of high passion. It has been, <laughs> it's been a theoretical journey and also an existential one for me, uh, to be honest. I have had to grapple with, as I was talking about before, not only my own advice giving uh, around passion when I was talking to students about uh, having them prioritize passion seeking above other important life considerations, but the way that that plays out in my own life. So I am lucky enough to be really personally invested in the work that I am doing. And it leads me often to many long days, long hours, working on weekends that I find myself often quite happily doing because I'm personally invested in it. Um, But one of the things that I talk about uh, at the end of the book is what it means for our relationship to work. I talk about the importance of, um, as I say, diversifying our meaning-making portfolio, uh, finding places outside of our paid employment that we can develop our sense of identity and find a sense of fulfillment and commitment to that is disconnected from where we draw our salary from. And in looking at my own life, there weren't a whole lot of places of meaning making outside of my own work. And so I had to actually invest the time and energy to make space in my own life for um, passions outside of my work, uh, to be able to align my own practice with the kinds of things um, I was recommending. And then it also was a sense of what does it mean What does it mean for academics generally to be engaging particularly graduate students in uh, a line of training where being passionate and displaying one's passion for the work is often seen as a sign of skill and excellence? 
if someone is doing equally quality work in terms of their output in the lab or the kind of research that they're doing and somebody is really passionate about it and someone seems to be doing it just for the miserly graduate student stipend, we often will tend to attribute more more excellence, more skill to the person who is passionate about the work. And we see that in spades in the way that graduate students apply to graduate school, right? As graduate school admissions essays almost inevitably talk about people's passion for the subject as a way to express their investment in it. And I think um, working in a in in an institutional space where passion has such currency um, is really dangerous for the perpetuation of this as well as um, for the negative outcomes that it can have as someone who works in tech where the passion the ideas of passion and having a passion for tech being a passionate developer being passionate at writing code and wanting to spend all your time doing that that's definitely a, a theme in the industry i work in and i also through knowing a bunch of academics know that that's a theme in academia as well that can create some really vicious feedback cycles of a lot of academics that i talk to are during their working hours they're what we think of as a sort of 9 to 5 They've got so much teaching load that they don't have time to do the research side of their job. And that's just expected to carry on in their non-working hours with some time that they have. And that that is such a common standard and a common principle in academia that it just has now become the like cost of entry which means that it's sometimes difficult for academics to try and have a personal life because there's just no time for it and it's not structured to allow for time uh, in that way. And I also see that quite often in the technology industry. You're so expected to be so invested in being a good developer that you're willing to go and do all of your, even if they're not projects specifically related to your job, you're still expected to be doing a bunch of personal projects, writing code on the side or writing, you know, working on other work projects in your off hours. It's become such a norm that anyone who wants to work nine to five is kind of somehow looks bare in comparison, which is really not how we want to be. Indeed. And, you know, there are all kinds of all kinds of reasons that you articulated that that's a problem. But I really want to underscore here that this is this is not inevitable to the capitalist post-industrial economy, right? There are many other examples where work is not arranged quite like that. And other people and people have different kinds of relationships to their paid employment. So Norway is a really good example of this. So in many white collar spaces in Norway, the expectation is how do I get the work that I need to get done as efficiently as possible so that I can invest in things that I love outside of work. So this often means going into work uh, in the morning, not ridiculously early, but going into work in the morning and working efficiently on the things that are needed for the, the kinds of, of, of pro production or outcomes that are expected of that white collar worker. And then stopping at a reasonable time, maybe five o'clock and going hiking or skiing or playing sports with friends or engaging in, in reading or movie watching or whatever. That might mean that there's an hour to of email checking in the evenings, but for the most part, the goal is cornering off paid employment work to a reasonable footprint in one's life so that one has the opportunity to live life outside of work as well. I would definitely love to see uh, more of Norway's influence in the English-speaking world because I, I definitely am seeing more and more a lot of what you talk about in the book, which is a lot of overwork, a lot of expectation of passion, and a lot of um, moral judgments on people who, for whatever reason, don't appear or don't align with our assumptions about what a career passion should be. Indeed. And there's one one final connection I want to make uh, with this point, and that's to the way that we see those without 
a college degree. So those who are um, often in, more often employed in the service sector line of work or blue collar work, there I think is this bleed over um, from the expectation of white collar workers to be passionate about their work into the service sector as well. So um, I, this is this is a hypothesis. I haven't collected data on this yet, but if you just open your eyes and look at at placards advertising services. So Starbucks, for example, will often advertise that their baristas are passionate about creating quality drinks for the customers. That's not just an expectation that the barista will create a latte that looks nice, that tastes delicious, but that they will perform a sense of passion for coffee making in the act of making this product for you. That is an additional kind of labor beyond the physical act of making the latte itself. And that is an imposition of an additional kind of work onto service workers that didn't necessarily exist uh, in prior decades. Really fascinating. It's really interesting research and I think a valuable read for anybody who is in university picking or trying to pick a major or in university now and trying to figure out what they're going to do afterwards or just people approaching that or even people like me who've been in the working industry for a while to kind of think a little bit more closely about how we think about the choices and how we think about our own career choices. Um, I found it really interesting. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining me today, Erin. My pleasure. And if you want to learn more about Erin Sec, her research, or her book, The Trouble with Passion, How Searching for Fulfillment at Work Fosters Inequality, we have links in the show notes for this episode, which you can find either on the podcast app you're using right now or on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. <laughs> <laughs>